840-221 for more information. Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel today. Celeste Ng is here in the studio with me. Celeste, welcome. I'm so, so glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me, T. <laughs> You've just, you're, you're a friend of the show already and a friend of mine. So, so, so happy to see you. It's the 21st of September 2017 um, and Celeste is coming through town. Little Fires Everywhere, um, a novel, your second novel. Um, and so you're going to have, you'll be at Literati, um, and you're also doing a massive tour around the U.S. as well, and you're sort of on the first half of it. Yeah, this is the end of the second week of four weeks on the road, so I'm kind of right in the middle of the travel part. Yeah. <laughs> Wishing you well, Celeste. You. <laughs> there, there was a moment at, at yesterday's reading where they said, where were you yesterday? And I said, uh... Did and you have, there was a long pause while I tried to remember where I was. Did you have to check your Twitter feed or something? I, I have a I have a schedule that my publicist made for me. My publicist is fantastic, and she basically wrote down where I'm supposed to be at every minute of each day. And I just go down and I make a big check next. And is to this each Julia? Is this, this is Julia. Oh, yeah. Hello, Julia, out there. Yeah, Julie. Julie's great. She oh. is. Um, she keeps me on track. She's oh. fantastic. Oh, wonderful. Okay, so before we go any further, um, I'll read the bio from the back of the book. Celeste Ng grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and Shaker Heights, Ohio. She attended Harvard University and earned an MFA from the University of Michigan. Her debut novel, Everything I Never Told You, won the Massachusetts Book Award, the Asian Pacific American Award for Literature, and the ALA's Alex Award. She is a 2016 NEA Fellow and she lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, and so this is like a homecoming, you coming back to Ann Arbor. It really is. It, I'm filled with nostalgia as I'm sort of, you know, going around town. I went over to, you know, um, to, to Zingerman's to get some food, of course. Of because, course, one must. <laughs> because you have to make the pilgrimage to Zingerman's when you're in town. So and, I, and what did you have? May we, I got we the, ask? I got the, what is it? It's the LBTBLT or TBLBLT. It's, it's like the BLT with cheese in it. And then I also had their potato chips and a... Uh, cherry soda and uh, and a dulce de leche brownie and a molasses cookie because I'm going to make the most of it. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. And I hope you left with a, a bag of goodies, too, for the... I did. Well, I haven't eaten the brownie yet, but that's for that's my reward for after the reading tonight. Okay. Yes. Yes. Always good to have treats, right? Um, and so, and recently also, Celeste, I noticed that um, you changed the tour plan a little bit so that you were on Late Night with Seth Meyers. Yeah, um, which was a huge thrill. I, I was uh, on Late Night this past Tuesday, the 19th, and um, I was actually supposed to be reading in my hometown <laughs> the setting of the book, Shaker Heights, Ohio. And when we got invited, they, that was the date that Late Night with Seth Meyers had. And so we talked about it and we said, I, th I think that my hometown will forgive me. Um, so when I was finally able to tell them, they said, okay, well, we're a little... We will for, I think they forgave me. For, right, right. For, and there's, I saw there's another date on the tour for them. There is, so they're it not going to be the last stop, which is kind of a nice homecoming stop, mm, yeah. Right, right. Oh, the, so they are going to be the last... The they're going to be the last travel stop, yeah. Oh, yeah. brilliant. Mm -hmm. okay. So they're all the way in November, actually. So I'm going to go, like, everywhere else, and then they will be sort of the last the last uh, book tour trip. Celeste, you are on, a, you know, we've said a massive book tour, but it's true. And that's, like, a rare a rare thing these it days. It is. I, I feel really lucky. It's... Um, I think it's four weeks of travel. Um, it's 22 events in 20 cities and then uh, a month of events scattered throughout uh, in Massachusetts. So I at least get to go home and sleep in my own bed and then I go back to Shaker Heights. So it, I feel very, very lucky to have done it. Um, it's I always love going and talking to readers and getting to go to all the bookstores. It's fantastic. I 
just wish somebody could invent a teleporter or, you know, like a beaming machine like in Star Trek, you know, where you could just kind of skip all the actual airport and train station stuff and go straight from place to place. Soon. One day soon, Celeste. I hope so. One day soon. And it's funny that you say that because your, your dad was a, he was a physicist, right? And yeah, for, that's right. For, I can't believe really that you remember that. Yeah, he worked for NASA. Um, so my he, dad did too, oh, but not as a physicist. I didn't know that. So, yeah, so my dad was in the, um, he was he worked at what used to be uh, Lewis Research Center outside of Cleveland, and now I think it's called um, it's called the John Glenn Research Center. They renamed it, and that's what brought you that's, to Shaker Heights. Exactly, that's actually why we moved to the Cleveland area. And my parents kind of looked at all the suburbs and. Um, NASA is on the west side of Cleveland, and Cleveland is a, is a weird city in that the east side and the west side just have this huge divide. Nobody moves from one side to the other, so you can you pick, pick a side. side. <laughs> it's really odd. I know nothing about the west side at all. That's where the airport is, and that's NASA, and that's the only things that I've ever done. Um, and, and it goes the other way, too. But they decided to move to Shaker Heights because it was known for having really good public schools, and it was known for being fairly racially diverse, at least in terms of black and white. And so um, they moved to Shaker Heights, and my dad just commuted across the city every Every day. And Shaker Heights is the setting of little fires everywhere. Yeah, it's that's I decided um, to actually use my hometown as the setting and to try and make this setting as um, true to life as I could. It's actually set in the time period that I would have been in high school. I would have been the same age as uh, Lexi, who's the oldest of the teenagers in the book, um, because that was the era in which I was living there. And I knew where they might go to, you know, have coffee or when they would go to the diner and what they would do there and, you know, what kind of music was on the radio. Um, it was a really fun sort of exercise to put it back in my hometown. How did this, The what's the origin story of this novel, Celeste? It, it really actually rises out of my hometown. Um, I had been away from home for long enough, sort of living as an adult, that I could look back on my hometown with a little bit of distance. And I could see um, a lot of things about it that I had always thought were normal that were actually not normal or common at all. Both, you know, for, you know, sort of silly and then also, um, you know, more serious things. So, um one of the sort of sillier things is like, you know, there's a lot of rules in Shaker Heights that I thought just everybody had. Everybody did that. So um, on Halloween, they would run the sirens at um, six o'clock to start the trick-or-treating and then at eight o'clock to end the trick-or-treating. And I thought that was how everybody did it. And so when it was time to take my son trick-or-treating in Boston... I said to my husband, okay, so so when, when does this start? And he said, what do you mean when does it start? <laughs> it starts when you go. And I said, well, but when, when does it end? And, and he said, it ends when you come home and you stop ringing people's doorbells. And uh, a girlfriend of mine who also grew up in Shaker Heights and has a girl about the same age is just like, this is just, it's chaos. This is, we can do this. <laughs> and and I, I didn't know that wasn't a usual thing. So there's a lot of things like that. But I also um, learned that there are a lot of really great things about Shaker Heights um, that also aren't common. Like we had a lot, we had creative writing classes in our high school, which I didn't realize that most high schools don't have. We had um, we had a creative writing class. We had a playwriting class. We had a screenwriting class. Um, there was actually a little um, program where student playwrights would write plays and then student actors would direct would uh, put them on with student directors they called it stage three and it was in this little black box theater down in the basement of the school so the fact that we had that kind of um arts program arts program yeah, yeah. exactly i didn't realize was so unusual and likewise the fact that race was a really big um topic of conversation i didn't realize was uncommon either and so and race is figuring into little fires everywhere Yes. Um, so one of the um, one of the plots of the book has to do with um, a custody case, an adoption case, where there's a an affluent white couple who has adopted a Chinese American baby. The McCulloughs. The McCulloughs. Yes. And Denmark. Yes, Linda and Mark McCullough. Um, and so they're well to do. They live in Shaker Heights. Um, they've wanted to have children and haven't been able to. And um, the there's a, an Asian baby, a Chinese American baby, who's abandoned at a fire station. And so they take her in, and they've been raising her. And uh, the baby's biological mother, who's a uh, you know Chinese new immigrant, comes back and wants to get custody of the baby back. And this really splits the town, but it also splits up sort of the two main families in the book, who are the Richardsons and then the Warrens, Mia, single mom, and her daughter. And so Mia, Warren, and Pearl. Yep. And then the Richardsons, who are in the book symbolic of, like, well, Elena Richardson, the mother, especially everything that sort of Shaker Heights 
embody yeah she's certain. she's she's almost sort of like the living personification in a way i mean she's really rooted in the community her parents live there her grandparents live there um and she's also very rule orient oriented and kind of regimented and she really she believes in doing good she's very well intentioned um but she's also somewhat rigid in the way that she thinks things should work. She's um, she's always sort of keeping score about who's doing what, you know, who's done what for whom. And it's yeah. lovely how you unravel that as the novel goes forward, because in the beginning you can also see her as a young woman that where you think there's some there's justice and there's order, sort of where she's coming from and the, her ideals. Yeah. But then at some point it does seem like you said just to become rigidity it, yeah it's sort of it's sort of like idealism that's become a little bit calcified in a way and actually that is uh, that's the sort of contradiction that led me to want to write about shaker heights in the first place um that it it's such a f there's such a tension there between um this almost sort of hippie progressivism kind of inclusiveness that they really want to be aware of race and class and all kinds of things and and they want to be very um sort of liberal and at the same time, they're also kind of anal about their rules. They're very picky about things. They're, you know, they're, they're sort of rigid about, you know, like if you, you get in trouble, if you don't mow your lawn, you know, things like that. And so there's such a tension between those two things going together. And I, I wanted to sort of explore that through a character, and that ended up being Mrs. Richardson. And so when you were imagining this book, you felt first and foremost that Shaker Heights was going to be the setting. So it was a character in itself, right? Exactly, yeah. And then... How how did because you did say one of the plot points is this because there's many that are woven together. Yeah, I mean it's so it started with the community, and then it um I started to think okay what kind of family would sort of embody this community and I came up with the Richardson family who you know are, are sort of like the um, archetypal Shaker Heights family. And so then, did you live near them? <laughs> I, I feel like I knew many families who were somewhat like them, and I sort of took pieces of them and put them together, um, and then. I gave them this sort of a black sheep who would sort of stir up trouble, who's Izzy, who's the youngest daughter, um, and who's sort of the, the rebel in the family. She's sort of misunderstood, and she's also the one who's sort of most drawn to um, Mia Warren and her daughter Pearl, who come, or the outsiders who come in from out of town and, and sort of provide the, um, they're the, the kind of Captain Happen of the story. And so when, so you actually saw the, like pictured this family, the Richardsons, and then Izzy kind of came into the the plan, or was Mia already part of that? That's what I'm, I'm yeah. kind of wondering. Or is it impossible to say now, I, Celeste? I, I feel like they how, came up. Yeah. They came up sort of um, as as sort of like paired, you know, binary stars that kind of rotate around oh. each other. Um, that I knew there was going to be this family, and I knew there was going to be this other family that would be sort of its polar opposite, and that they would kind of be pulled towards each other and also be repelling each other at the same time. And so those two families sort of arose at the same. You know, they they it's sort of like they're it's like it's like Superman and Bizarro Superman in a way. Like you know, they 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 can't exist without each other um and and it was that tension that then started driving the plot of the story so when when you're sort of like the early when how long did it take for this book I, well the writing of it took about two years um and i was sort of patting myself on the back and really proud and then <laughs> what happened was that um i then looked at my notes and i realized that i had been thinking about these characters and jotting down ideas and figuring out the plot since 2009 so really? it actually yeah so it took actually about six and a half to seven years and so it was actually just as long as the first book and so shortly after you left here um yeah i was I, I was sort of thinking it I was at a point with my first novel where uh, I had problems with the first uh, novel and I didn't know how to solve them. And I came up with this other idea. And that idea seemed really great and really sexy. and So shiny. Exactly. I was like, oh, it has none of the problems of this current draft. I know how to do that one. That one is really interesting. And it's great. And so there was a you know moment where my attention was sort of diverted. And of course, at a certain point, I hit the same problems in the second book as I had in the first book. And I had to you know go back and both. Um, oh, but were wait. So were you then? Did you at one point were you writing both of these concurrently? Then there wasn't just like the release of um, little fires everywhere where you were sketching pieces. Did you have actually both of these a, a projects bit. going? I had I had a full draft of of everything I never told you my first book, and um, I, I was trying to figure out how to get it to the next draft. And so I started. I drafted just the opening of Little Fires Everywhere, um, and then at a certain point I had to go back and finish the first book. But so there, there was a while where both of them were in existence at the same time. Right, right. Yeah. How interesting then, because when your imagination, when you're entering into these different worlds, 
that, that seems like there'd be tension between those two worlds too. But but you Indeed. were saying maybe it was helpful. I, I feel like in some ways that um, that kind of freed up my brain in a little bit. I don't know if you find this, but that often when I am thinking about a problem and I'm focused on it, I, I get sort of tunnel vision and I can't see how to get around it. And then what happens is if I go and work on something else that I believe is unrelated, oftentimes that loosens things up or I get some mm. kind of insight that maybe I wouldn't have had if I just kind of kept working straight on it. So a sideways. Yeah, it's, it I, I find often that that's what happens, that my brain likes to make connections and that's what tends to get things moving again. Well, let's let's take a short break now, and then we'll come back and we'll hear more. Today on the program, Celeste Ng is here. Her latest novel, Little Fires Everywhere, um, out with Penguin Press. Uh, I'm T. Hetzel. We've got the Liz behind the glass. We'll be back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. Celeste Ng is here in the studio. Her novel, Little Fires Everywhere. Celeste, thanks for choosing the songs for today's program, too. I had a lot of fun picking out the songs, actually. Um, because I said I was a teenager in the 90s, and so uh, just listening to Four Non Blondes makes me, I said, makes me feel like I'm 15 again. I feel like we should be swaying. And like, just with our lighters up. and. <laughs> Um, and so and it, the songs that you chose for today's program as well, they're all relating to different characters. Yeah. So each of the songs, I tried to think about what song would sort of epitomize the character or what kind of music would they have been listening to. And so the song that we um, we heard at the very top was uh, the Juliana Hatfield trio, um, Spin the Bottle, which for me was sort of Lexi's uh, theme song. That she, It's sort of about like kind of dizzy, fun, bubbly girl times. Um, it really, re I really strongly associate it with uh, the movie Reality Bites, which for me is sort of one of the quintessential 90s movies. Um, one of my best friends used to play that song on repeat all the time. But it's also a song I think about sort of uh, burgeoning sexuality and, you know, that kind of blurred line between innocence and knowingness and that that's very much where Lexi, the oldest of the um, Richard, Richard children is. And then this song that we just heard is um, What's Up by Four Non Blondes, which is yeah one of my favorites again when I was about 15. And um, for me, that was the only song that could really describe Izzy, who's the youngest of the Richardson kids. She's the um, kind of rebel without a cause. She's sort of fighting against the um, strictures of her family and of her community and also just being a teenager. She just she wants to rebel in any way possible, even though she's not totally sure what she's rebelling about. She seems like such a hero, though. She's so... What's wonderful in this, Celeste, in, the, in Little Fires Everywhere, is that you also have empathy. You build out each of the characters. So even if some of the characters are doing things that are providing the tension or making things worse for other characters. And most of them are at some point in the book. I think everyone does. It is tangled. It is. Yes. Um, you still have this way of, as the writer, it seems like you have such empathy for them where you're not, you're, you're careful to show other parts of who they are or, or, or fill them out in ways where we can, as the reader, have empathy for them. Yeah, I really wanted to write a story in which there wasn't a villain. Um, you know, there was no 
bad guy, you know, um, some, and, and there was no hero either. Uh, you know, I wanted all of these characters to sort of be understandable so that even if you wouldn't do what they were doing or even if you didn't like what they were doing, you would at least see why they thought they were doing the right thing. Um, I have a now seven-year-old. I almost said six-year-old, and he would be very upset. <laughs> yes. Now I have a seven-year-old. Seven seven um, and one of the things that we talk about sometimes is this idea of good guys and bad guys. And I pointed out to him that the bad guys usually don't think that they are the bad guys. They think that they're the good guys. And that's a really sort of complicated thing to get your head around. But I think it, I think it really is true that usually even people who are doing kind of bad things, things most people would, would assume are bad, they think that they're doing them for good reasons. And that was kind of what I wanted to get at in the book. I've, I mean, especially for Elena Richardson, for the mother character, for the Richardson family. Yeah, she crosses a lot of lines, but she really, she convinces herself that she's doing it for a good reason. You know, she's doing it for her, her friend, um, Linda McCullough, who is the, um, wants to be the adopted mother of this, um, this abandoned baby. She convinces herself that she's doing it to, you know, protect her family or she's doing it for sort of all these sort of moral reasons. And she really walks herself into a very, very murky gray area. With consequences. Yes. Definite consequences that she's not even able to fathom even immediately, like once she's faced with them, even. Exactly. I mean, I think that she really, um, I think in some ways this is, it's almost a sort of coming of age story of Elena Richardson and that she is sort of figuring out, you know, it's about her processing sort of these more complicated situations that is a little more complicated than she thought they were. Right, right. And, um, well, I would definitely also say, for me, for reading Little Fires Everywhere, I felt very, like, very much like Mia was heroic thoroughly and Izzy too um there's a scene early on in the book for Izzy when apparently like her whole family thinks she's slightly like a bit of a wingnut but (laughs) then she actually stands up for someone in her class by breaking the conductors um I don't know if you want to talk about it it's better if you talk about it I was like how much do I want to give away about this is one of my favorite scenes in the book but I don't but I don't get to talk about it very often because I mean you know I don't want to spoil anything but um, well that's what it does make it hard to talk about some elements of the book well I can I can say this so Izzy is um yeah her family tends to think that she's just a little as they call her they call her a nutcase you know and they joke that she's going to be on Jerry Springer you know at at some point um which is really unfair it's kind of it's a little unfair I mean she is a little bit radical but she's also she's she's fifth she's 15 so um she she um stands up for somebody who you know there's a teacher has been unfair to another student and Izzy kind of takes this personally and decides that she's going to wreak revenge on this teacher and and does with what I hope are, for the reader, sort of satisfying results. Um, you know, I think it's still arguable. Uh, I I workshop that scene uh, with my writers group, and two members of the writers group are um, teachers, middle school and high, middle school and high school teachers, but in public schools. And one of them read it, and she said, "Oh, this is every teacher's nightmare." And I, it was a good reminder to have some empathy for the teacher as well, because I think mm-hmm. this the little uh, plot that Izzy cooks up has some lasting consequences for the teacher. And um, it's it's true also that, again, you know, she probably thought she was doing the right thing, even though we think she was being unfair. That's interesting, because the... the um of all the characters, I would say, <laughs> this, I can't even remember her name. I didn't write Miss, it down. Mrs. Peters. Or Mrs. Yeah. Peters is the the least empathetic. Yeah, I, I don't um, really think she, I don't think she's doing the right thing. And she, I also teach. Like I'm not trying yeah, to no, attack. No, she, but I, mean, I, I, I love teachers. She she makes sort of a, like an overtly kind of racist comment is what happens. And um, yeah, I didn't want to be coy and talk around it, but um. So, I mean, I think it's it's pretty clear cut that she has not done the right thing, but I th- I'm sure she, in her mind, would explain that as, oh, it was, it was just a joke, or I didn't mean anything by that, mm-hmm. you know, in the way that I think many people, many people do. often do, yeah. right? Whereas, you know, it's not the right thing, and yet there are all kinds of ways that we have to sort of rationalize away things that we do that we are uncomfortable with because we know they're wrong. Well, one of the things that struck me when I was reading a, about the book and, and, and things that you've been also talking about, Celeste, um, is that you were saying that Shaker Heights, and tell, correct me if this is not what you were saying, but um, that it was a place where people said, well, we don't see race at, at that time, like in the 90s. And now it's become kind of, you know, like a joke, like after Colbert. I was going to say where right, he said, I don't see race because, you know. I'm not, I'm of course not a race. I don't, yeah. Right, or he has, you know, progressively more ridiculous things. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I said the book in the 90s also because I, 
I wanted to look at how far we have come with regards to how we look at race and how far we have also not come. And what I remember um, about in the 90s um, was that the way that you sort of showed your race consciousness was to kind of disregard race. And that was the sort of way that you phrase it to say like, you know, I don't see race. And I think now we understand that that is a, a, compli- a, a complicated and problematic Damaging. thing. Damaging. Right, because you're you're omitting a large part of a person's identity. You're omitting a lot of context, both personal and historical. You're just, there's a whole aspect of, of a person's life and experience that you're pretending isn't there. Um, and I think that is something that we have really like sort of made progress on. And I feel like now in Shaker Heights, people probably also would not say that anymore. You know, the same way that we look back on ourselves 20 years ago doesn't seem that long ago. And yet I, I hope we've come some distance, at least in sort of recognizing that not seeing race is actually then not seeing a person for who they are. And and this comes back in the, the in many this this um, rises up in several places in the book. Um and one of the the powerful places is in towards the end with with the scene in the the courtroom. I think with Linda McCullough. Yeah, this has to do with the um, the custody battle. Yeah. Um, and and so, and her saying that she would think about taking a trip to China, but things that I don't know. Can you talk a little bit yeah, about so that? I don't want you to have to give away too many. No, plot I don't. Points, but, but I, I, I think I that like that was valuable. a really important scene to me actually, and so I was really glad that you brought it up. Um, so it's, it's during the, you know, the sort of custody hearings. Uh, there's been a local lawyer um, who's a Chinese-American man who is representing the biological mother. Who's baby. A, baby. Yeah, baby. And um, there's uh, another lawyer, um, Mr. Richardson, the father of the Richardson family, is representing the um, the McCulloughs in trying to, um, you know, keep the custody and, and have their adoption go through. And one of the things that the um, the Chinese-American lawyer grills the prospective adoptive mom about is just sort of how how she is or isn't going to be able to um, keep this baby in touch with her birth culture, her, her Chinese-ness, in, in other words. And so he asked her a lot of questions that I think now we are a little bit more aware of, but I feel like at the time we're not necessarily on everyone's radar. Um, sort of like, well, what did, what do her dolls look like, right? Um, and, and she's saying, well, they're dolls. You know, they're, they're, they've got you know they've got eyes that open and close, and, and they eventually realize that all of these dolls are, are white dolls. You know, right. they've got blonde hair and blue eyes, and they look nothing like this baby. And you know, what about her books? And that they've got no, you know, they, they don't really have books that that have positive representations of Asians in them. And this was something that um, I think my mom was aware of when I was a kid, and um, that. I now, because I'm a mother, sort of recognize how much work she did to try and get me representation. She was always trying to find me an Asian baby doll, and we really couldn't find one. Um, And so when American Girl came out with their first line of, you know, the kind of looks like me dolls, I can't remember what they were called, but in in 1995, my mom bought me one, even though, you know, I was 15 and I was like kind of aged out of dolls, but it was really important to her and to me to have a doll that was like an Asian doll that kind of looked like me. And so I, you know, I, I wanted to sort of tease apart the ways in which like parents sometimes are able to give their kids what they need and sometimes aren't. You know, that's that's the hard thing about this case is that the McCulloughs, they're very wealthy. They love this child. They can give her everything except for they don't really know how to help keep her in touch with Chinese culture because that's not something that they know. And her mother maybe can do that, but can't give her these other things. And so either way, this child is going to lose something. And it seems like when with the the mother Bibi, the the birth mother, um, she again, this is one of the places where you 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 give such a whole picture of what's happening with each of the characters, where she was suffering from. It seems like postpartum depression, like yeah, where she wasn't, and, and she was alone. She had been left, like right, and she and you know her English wasn't very good, and so she didn't know about how to get resources, what resources were out there for her, and that they would even be there. Exactly, and so in this sort of moment of desperation, she decides that the best thing to do is to leave the baby at the fire station, which where they can. Which then your novel is interrogating to see, like, is it the best? And it seems like at the time it was. She did because she couldn't. The, the baby was malnourished. That's right. and, she's, and, then, and in a sense, she has put right. it somewhere where it can be, you know, yes. where it can be, you know, where she can be taken care of in, in a way that she couldn't. And I guess the question then is sort of, does she get to have a do-over? This is something that I, um, I, I talked to Scott Simon on, a, um, on Weekend Edition, and he said, you know, are there things that you don't get to have a do-over about? And he really pushed on that. And I, it, you know, it's, it, it's an interesting question, because the question is, of course, there are things that you don't get a do-over for. It's just, 
what are those things? And that's right. where we where we draw that line is the hard thing. Right. And, and wow, that's interesting because then also that reminds me of a line of Mia Warren's where, you know, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. I don't know why, like this action, this sense of action. Yeah. Well, it's wonderful how you handle that question about in the novel and we don't have to go, <laughs> we don't have to solve it. Like, we so won't spoil we the won't, novel no. for, for listeners. <laughs> but, but it is that question that he's asked, like, are there do-overs? Um, yeah. That's I, really one of the big questions I think of this. And I think of a lot of my work is the question of, do you ever get to leave your past behind? Do you ever get to make a clean break and that's one of the things and I, I'm not sure if you do you know sometimes I think it also depends on who you are you know how much of a second chance you get to have some people get them and some don't and maybe sometimes the past you needs to be said yes I think so I think it's generally when you're running from the past it's usually going to catch up with you at some point let's take a short break and then when we, when we come back we'll hear some of a piece of prose some of the prose from Celeste Ng's Little Fires Everywhere. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be back. I'm broke, but I'm happy. I'm poor, but I'm kind. I'm short, but I'm Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, um, you've got Living Writers. And today on the program, Celeste Ng is here. Her novel, Little Fires Everywhere, um, out with Penguin. Uh, thank goodness. Thank goodness for great presses. <laughs> <laughs> I've been really lucky that Penguin Penguin Press and Penguin have just been sort of the the perfect publishing experience so far. So I'm really grateful to them. They don't, I think the authors tend to get all the credit for their books, you know, because your name is the only one on the cover, but it doesn't, it doesn't, that doesn't acknowledge all that the editors and the copy editors and the publicists and the publishers who are doing all that work to get the book to readers. So I'm, I'm very grateful to them. Well, and that seems clear because it seems like in your, always in your acknowledgements from your, even from your first book, like <laughs> Um, you're, you're naming names and yeah, thanking them. <laughs> I, well, I, I was always taught by my mom that, you know, you say thank you when someone does something helpful for you and, you know, you didn't get here by yourself. But, um, I remember when I was on book tour for my first novel, somebody said, I counted and you thanked so and so many people. Why did you thank so many people? And I, I didn't know how to answer the question. I said, because they, they did things that helped me and I wanted to thank them. So. And you, and you were very generous not to say, and why did you count how many people? <laughs> like that seems even, I, I don't did, know. What... I did want to know, but it wasn't the time. So <laughs> the public forum. Uh, exactly. Um, so, well, and at the break, well, right before the break, we were talking about motherhood and parents, mm -hmm. parents and, um, and this question and, and Celeste, you were, you were sort of saying over break, um, yeah, I was yeah, saying take us back there. that question about um, sort of, you know, it, what uh, what happens if your, you know, your parent isn't able to give you sort of what you need or, you know, when do you get to have a do over? And I feel like that's actually a question that I, I, I wanted to ask, not just of the McCulloughs, the parents who want to adopt this baby um, that's of a different race, but actually of all of the parents. You know, I, I think it's a good question to ask of Bibi, the biological mother, because she's not able to give her daughter all of the things that her daughter needs. You know, she was really in a state where she couldn't care for her daughter. And I think the same thing, actually, even of Mia Warren and of Elena Richardson, um, all of the Richardson kids in one way or another are kind of drawn towards Mia, who's mm -hmm. very different from their own mother. She's sort of a free spirit. She's an artist. She you know, has moved around. Um, she kind of gets them 
and she's unmotherly in a way that their mother is not. And Pearl, uh, Mia's daughter, is really drawn to Mrs. Richardson. Um, she's stable. She does all these sort of motherly things, like she bakes cookies, and she um, <laughs> she does all of the things that her own mother does not. And I, I was so fascinated by that idea that sometimes we choose different mothers than the mothers that we're born to because we can get different things from them. Um, a lot of times I think your, you know, your birth mother is sometimes not the best person to see you the most clearly because they're so close to you and, and you're so close and to them. so many things but sometimes they are the ones to see you the most clearly exactly in and particular things yeah. exactly in some things and in some things not Completely and and not. that's and that's sort of the question that I wanted to look at which is sort of what things can you give your child as a parent and then what things are you not able to give them and, and how are they going to get them well right. and isn't it interesting when we're thinking about parenthood though that we are focusing on one part of the equation on mothers yeah well I think that um I think that in our culture for a long time, but certainly right now, that motherhood is sort of fetishized um, in a way that fatherhood isn't. I think it applies to parenthood, but it's really looked at in terms of motherhood. And partly that's because, you know, generally speaking, the burden of actually like bearing the child falls on the mother. But it's also a cultural thing that we I think we look at mothers a lot and we judge their love for their children based on what they do or what they don't do. And judge being a key word. Exactly. And you're pretty much judged no matter what you do. You're judged if you have children. You're judged if you decide not to have children. You're judged if you can't have children. You're judged if you um, if you undergo IVF because it's, it can be quite invasive on your body. You're judged if you adopt instead of trying everything you could to have your own children. Children. You're judged if you have too many children or, you know, you had children too late or too early. I mean, basically, however you do it, you're going to get judged and you probably did it wrong. And this is something that I think about, as you can probably tell, yes. as, as a mom also. And I do it to myself as well. You know, I if I you know, if I don't put a note in my son's lunch, you know, am I do I not love him as much as the moms who do put notes in their kids lunch every day? You know. Um, you know, if I if I don't buy him this thing or I buy him that thing or I don't take him to this thing or I make him practice the piano or whatever it is, there's so much judgment going on that I think mothers end up almost being asked to judge themselves. And often they're the harshest critics of themselves as well. There's this idea that somehow your love can only be manifested through the things that you do or that you don't do, which I feel like is really, um, really destructive. <laughs> And, uh, and then so that was something that I, I also, you know, I find myself exploring in my work, sort of this idea of, well, Mia packs up her, her daughter and they move around and they, you know, they've lived in so and so many cities and, you know, she never finishes out the school year in one place. But does that mean that she loves her daughter less? You know, how does that do those things correlate to each other no, at all? No. Yeah. Um, and you also um you have a women's clinic featured in the novel as well. Yes. As part of a, a another plot point yeah and um you know and i i think again that's another place where women get judged in terms of just what they do with their bodies right do they do they use birth control what kind of birth control they use if they're pregnant you know do they decide to keep the child or not um and all of those things i feel like are, are again sort of lose-lose situations for women because they're the ones best suited to make those decisions and yet they're going to be judged about whatever it is that they do. Um, and for me, the, this book really is sort of about all of these sort of just different aspects of, of womanhood and femininity that, um, that other people feel the need to uh, kind of have opinions about. And so it's lovely how you explore these ideas that are really difficult and painful about race, about gender, about, uh, yeah, all of these things and about family relationships and, and some, and also even thinking about what you were just saying at the top of this, this quarter, Celeste, how people who love you can't always give you ever and, and you're, and being aware of that on both sides in some way. Yeah. I think that, um, if, if there's any, you know, message to my story, if they, you know, um, I, when I go to talk to high school, sometimes they, the students say, okay, so what is the moral of your book? And I always have to tell them, well, I, I didn't, it's not an Easter egg hunt, right? So I didn't, I didn't hide things there. So to a certain extent, the moral is kind of up to you to decide if that's the meaning that you make of the book. But I guess if there is sort of a through line between this novel and my last novel and a lot of my stories, it is, I think, just sort of being aware of and sort of accepting the, the differences between people in the ways that we often just can't understand each other as well as we want to, sort of recognizing that there is always going to be that, that scrim sort of in between people. Um, if you can't overcome it, the best you can do is at least recognize that it's there. 
Will you read some sure. for us, Celeste? Um, so I'll read I realize because I'll keep talking with you otherwise. <laughs> oh, this we'll is the thing. <laughs> I think we could keep talking like this for another couple of hours. Um, Stay tuned, folks. This is for the special extended edition. Exactly. Um, let me read you just a little bit. Um, we talked a little bit about the community and the sort of um, fixation on rules that they have, um, which is the flip side of that uh, utopian idealism that they have. But let me read you this little bit that sort of gives you more of a, a picture of the community. Winslow Road was one long line of duplexes, but standing on the curb, you would not have known it. From the outside, you saw only one front door, one front door light, one mailbox, one house number. You might, perhaps, spot the two electrical meters, but those, per city ordinance, were concealed at the back of the house, along with the garage. Only if you came into the entryway would you see the two inner doors, one leading to the upstairs apartment, one to the downstairs, and their shared basement beneath. Every house on Winslow Road held two families, but outside appeared to hold only one. They had been designed that way on purpose. It allowed residents to avoid the stigma of living in a duplex house, of renting instead of owning, and allowed the city planners to preserve the appearance of the street, as everyone knew neighborhoods with rentals were less desirable. Shaker Heights was like that. There were rules, many rules, about what you could do and what you could not do, as Mia and Pearl began to learn as they settled into their new home. They learned to write their new address, 18434 Winslow Road, up, those two little letters ensuring that their mail ended in their apartment and not with Mr. Yang downstairs. They learned that the little strip of grass between sidewalk and street was called a tree lawn because of the young Norway maple, one per house, that graced it, and that garbage cans were not dragged there on Friday morning, but instead left at the rear of the house to avoid the unsightly spectacle of trash cans cluttering the curb. Large motor scooters, each piloted by a man in an orange work suit, zipped down each driveway to collect the garbage in the privacy of the backyard, ferrying it to the larger truck idling out in the street. And for months, Mia would remember their first Friday on Winslow Road, the fright she'd had when the scooter, like a revved-up, flame-colored golf cart, shot past the kitchen window with engine roaring. <laughs> so these are a few examples that, that are actually true about Shaker Heights and that, again, I thought were totally normal. It seems so, it seems so outlandish, nobody, Celeste. Nobody believed me when I told them about this, but the truth is that in uh, 2008, when the recession hit, Cleveland was hit really hard, and Shaker Heights was looking for ways to economize, and they said, you know, should we get rid of the little tiny garbage trucks and the city residents overwhelmingly said no we cannot just put our garbage out on the curb for everybody to see <laughs> so I, I'm I feel like that almost that does really sort of epitomize um the Shaker Heights mentality which is that you really you want to sort of make this perfect world but it certainly comes with some costs right right mm -hmm. and there's this a beautiful line in in the book um where you're you're thinking um, it's towards the end and it's where um, you're writing about what's behind each of the doors on Winslow. Um, and there's a moment where Mrs. Richardson actually says um, comments like, what will they think of me? Yeah. She's, when she's outside. She's so she's very, vulnerable. She's sitting outside on the front steps uh, towards the end of the book and she's feeling very exposed, um, both sort of literally, she, this is in the aftermath of everything that's happened, but she's, she's again, she is, she's thinking about all of the lives that are sort of unfolding behind all of those doors and, and you know, what they must be thinking of her sitting out there on the steps. Would you mind reading that line, sure. Celeste, if um, you've got it there? Yeah, this is down um, the very end. It says, all up and down the street, the houses look like any others. But inside them were people who might be happy, or taking refuge, or stealing themselves to go out into the world, searching for something better. So many lives she would never know about unfolding behind those doors. And, and for me, that's, that's part of what leads me to writing, is all those sort of unknown lives. And keeps you writing. Exactly. Even from when you were a little kid, right, Celeste? Yeah, I'm always, uh, writing for me is always about writing towards what I don't understand, I think, that I'm always trying to figure out why would somebody do that? Why would that happen? And the process of writing for me is figuring out what might have led them up to that point. And do you find yourself wanting to imagine it? Or, so when you're researching things, like, are there moments where you might, um, where you do talk, for example, to the librarian at the Shaker Heights Historical Library. Yeah, it's, so. there's, there's a um, historical, there's a Shaker Heights room within the Shaker Heights oh. Public Library where they keep all of the local history, which is an amazing resource. Um, I do, I wanted to try to, you know, I wanted to imagine it in the particular. So I, I made this particular family 
And then I also wanted to um, kind of put it in the larger context because nobody nobody comes out of nowhere, right? Everyone's always sort of formed by the community that they're in. And that was where the local history library was really helpful in sort of giving me the context of um, the kind of community that even back in 1912, the founders of the city wanted to try to create this sort of perfect little utopia. Um, advertisements depicted it as being literally the end of the rainbow, you know, <laughs> uh, on, on top of a shining hill at the end of a rainbow outside of the dirty city. I mean, that was their vision from the beginning. Ah, oh, Shaker Heights. It's, and it, it, by luck, by chance, that's where you grew up. It and is, then... and it, it shaped me into the person I am. You know, nobody comes from, from out of nowhere. There's there's always a context. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a short break, and then we'll be back today on Living Writers. Celeste Ng is here. Little Fires Everywhere, the novel on the table. We'll be back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Celeste Ng is here. Little fires everywhere. The monkeys, The monkeys. We were just kind of, (laughs) during the music, kind of geeking out about the monkeys. Um, So this song, I feel like, was was sort of um, the perfect song for Elena Richardson, Mrs. Richardson, as she likes to be called in the novel, um, because it's so much a song about suburbia and about that idea of the perfect facade. And yet, of course, we know listening to the song that it is not about that sort of perfect facade. Um, It's been interpreted as being a critique of suburbia. It's been interpreted as being uh, about a mental asylum um, where, you know, this, this, the patients are all sort of there. Um, but one of the things that I love about it on a, a meta level is that the Monkees, of course, were this band that was formed for the purpose of the TV show, The Monkees, which I grew up watching. Did you grow up watching The yes, Monkees? Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I had a crush on Mike with the hat. Oh, Mike was, he was the coolest. He, well, he was the yeah. leader. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> I did not realize at the time that The Monkees had not been a real, they were only a band for the purpose of the show. It was like a fake thing. It was like, a fake it's thing. It's like a first boy band. Right, exactly. Kind of thing, like they right? were this sort of manufactured quant- quantity, except that um, several of them actually were musicians. Like Peter Tork yes. actually like ended up leaving because he felt that they weren't really kind of like real enough musicians. And Davy Jones had been a singer, but mm-hmm. he didn't really play an instrument, so they gave him the maracas. And, you know, Mike Nesmith did, really did play the guitar. So they sort of were real musicians, but they sort of weren't. And they would... On the show, they were pretending to be this real, live, successful band. And then in real life, they became this real, live, successful TV band. But they didn't always play their own instruments and they didn't write their own songs. And so there's a very weird sort of mixing exactly of of reality and artifice um, that I kind of love also about Mrs. Richardson, that she's all in a lot of ways. She's about sort of the difference between sort of surface and then the inside, um, both sort of how things appear and how they are about what her intentions are and then about what her actions are um and for me the fact that the monkeys are this sort of weirdly situated band on the you know are they real are they not real is is sort of it was just like a a song that was meant to be for her for her yes it's elena's song definitely elena richardson um status symbol land yes yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> it's so peppy. It's such a peppy song. <laughs> so I also I wanted to ask you about um, your dedication. Oh, sure. I loved it. Um, to those out on their own paths, setting little fires. Yeah, so the first book they dedicated was to uh, my family. Everything I never told you um, was just for my family, by which I meant my, you know, sort of mom and dad and sister nuclear family, and then also my husband and my son and my my extended family, because um, that book for me was a lot about family. And this book I wanted to dedicate to to friends of mine, and I was sort of thinking, well, I don't, am I going to name them all? You know, and what I really loved about all of them, I realized as I was thinking about, you know, the people who, who sort of inspire me now were that they were people who kind of didn't always follow the rules and they didn't always sort of care about what they were supposed to be doing. And they were the ones who remind me sometimes that what I think I should be doing isn't actually the thing that I need or want to be doing. And so I, I wanted to sort of dedicate it broadly to the people who go out and set their own little fires, who sort of, you know, use that kind of um, destruction for something good. Because in the book, too, Mia talks about seeing a, a wildfire yeah. across some land. Yeah, she talks about fires as um, both a destructive and a sort of a creative or a, a, a renewing kind of force. Um, the, I, sh I guess I should say that the book does start out with, with a literal fire, um, that the Richardson's house is, is burning in the first sentence of the book. Um, but the the discussion about fire, sort of the way that it can also clear out a lot of the old in order for the new things to come in, which is what happens with prairie fires. You know, every so often the prairies have to burn so that new growth can come up that actually enriches the soil and it does a lot of things biologically. This is my science nerd part coming out. Um, but I, I love that tension that fire is this sort of really powerful tool. It can destroy things, but it can also be really useful. And a lot of it depends on who's holding the, the match. You also use the metaphor of a spark. Yeah, there's. Uh, I d actually didn't realize that there was so much fire in the book. When I uh, gave this manuscript to my agent, it didn't have a title, and she said, "Okay, this is great, and it's ready to, you know, to be sent out." But we need a title, and she told me to go through the whole book and write down any phrases from the book that I thought might make good titles. And so I wrote about two pages of different phrases, and the one that we kept circling to, and that we eventually stuck with, was "Little fires everywhere." Um, it's something that one of the characters says right at the beginning of the book. The the house fire was not just one big fire, so probably not an accident. It was a lot of little fires set everywhere. And when we talked about that, I realized actually that was sort of a controlling metaphor for the book, a kind of unintentional one, is that there is a lot of um, metaphorical fire sort of simmering under the surface. But there's a lot also of discussion about sort of the, the sparks that you have of idealism in your youth and how those get tamped down or not as you get older. That's sort of what happens to Mrs. Richardson. And, and what maybe she's trying to do to Izzy, maybe yeah. to protect her or maybe it, it, yeah, or, in or, impatience or, exactly. when you see yourself in something. That's it. Or sort of the, the idea, I think, that sometimes you have to, you have to sort of, you, you want someone to have a, you know, we talk about spark as being a good thing, right? And passion and a fiery personality, but you don't want them to be too fiery or too <laughs> out of control. There's this weird, again, sort of like middle ground that I feel like many people, especially women and especially teenage girls are steered into, which is, you know, yes, we want you to be strong, but not too strong. Right. And, and speak your mind, but don't be bossy. You know, that idea that, you know, somehow there's this perfect line that you're supposed to walk in you know, the perfectly controlled fire, which I think doesn't really exist. So when you're drafting the book, when you, you write it through, when you go back, are you looking for some of these, these, uh, like the little fires, no, no, <laughs> the, the metaphors, like when you, um, and are you finding them or like, and bringing them forward, like the spark, like, cause that was for the ending. That's, it makes it like a thing of beauty to yeah. this, this I, idea. I went through and I was really surprised at sort of how many places there were where I mentioned fire or sparks or sort of smoldering or things like that or heat. You know, there's mm. lots of hot moments. And so in the process of revising it, what I really wanted to do was to kind of concentrate those so that they appeared at the right moments so that there weren't too many of them, but that they were also showing up at the times that you needed to be reminded that right. these fires have, have always been there. I suddenly have Billy Joel in my head. It was like we didn't start the fire. Start the fire. <laughs> Should be a little the too on the nose. Little little bonus number there as <laughs> that we give you without yeah. actually singing all the words to yes. it, right? I yeah, don't think it, it, do does it anybody right. know all the words, even Billy Joel? I'm not sure if he does. I don't know, Billy, if you're out there, give us a give us a ring. Living writers, WCBM. <laughs> or call Celeste. 
Contacts the less. Um, so we also touched a little bit on this, um, the research that you did for this book. And, and so, and is, are you like a detective sometimes when you're, you're in these stories? Because the imagination and the empathy is clear within it. So when I started writing the book, um, because I did live in this town in this era, I worked off of memory first to kind of get the feel of it. I wanted the sort of the mood. And then I went back and I kind of checked my work, so to speak. So this is where I went to the Shaker Heights Library and the Shaker Historical Society. And, the diner. And the diner. Yes, I went to the diner and I called it research and I ate french fries and had, had milkshakes and played songs in the jukebox because I had to remember, you know, exactly what it was like. Um, it's all kinds of great things that you get to do as a fiction writer and call it research. But um, all of the sort of details of the community are as accurate as I could make them. So, you know, these places, for the most part, really do exist. And, you know, there is a diner, it's a fa fantastic diner called Yours Truly, where we used to spend a lot of time. Um, and, you know, a lot of the anecdotes, even from, you know, Mrs. Richardson's childhood or earlier on, all of those things um, exist, too. There's an anecdote in there about how um, a, a young woman, a newlywed, had lost her engagement ring shoveling snow. And so the city took the entire snowbank, put it in a dump truck and brought it to, you know, the kind of garage and melted it down so that they could find her ring for her. That's a real anecdote that, um, you know, I found while I was doing this research, because I think some of those things, um, they're, they're, they're too, they're too good to have been made up in, in right. some ways. And so all of the family, you know, the story of the Richardsons and, um, Mia and Pearl, that's all the stuff that I got to make up. That's sort of the, the jam that filled in around all of the sort of details that were there or that this community kind of gave to me. So and also I, I'm wondering, like pulling in elements of your own life or experience, like the sandwich that Mia makes in the Richardson's kitchen i think for yeah. izzy is that a sandwich that is that you a love sandwich <laughs> that is a sandwich that my mother-in-law um used to eat when she was a little girl that her mother my grandmother-in-law would make for her this sort of sh toasted sugar sandwich and i thought it sounded delicious and i actually have never made one but i loved that that gesture of, of her making that sandwich and i had to put it into the book so yeah a lot of those things are sort of um things that i got to to pull on and put in and what are what are you working on now i know we we don't have long but um, um i've got two ideas that are sort of elbowing each other for space in my brain right now and i, I don't know which one of them is going to come out on top um they're they're quite different from each other in a lot of ways, but they both do sort of have to do with um, biracial families and they both have to do with mothers and children. Um, so one is sort of focused, I think, on a mother and son and the other one is sort of focused on two sisters who are both mothers and have daughters. But they're in the very blurry sort of stages for me. They're sort of wispy and I'm waiting, I'm waiting for them to coalesce. So I'm in this fun information gathering stage where I get to kind of follow my, my interest and go down a lot of rabbit holes and sort of see what interesting things are there and see what sticks to these, these, you know, kind of nascent ideas. And it, but it feels like they're both separate. It's not as if there might be some way where it can. I don't think so. I think they're going to be two separate things. And so I may, maybe I will be in the awkward stage of working on two different books at the same time. I've got two notebooks going, one for each of them right now. So, so we'll have to see what, what comes uppermost. And is the novel your favorite, your form right now, Celeste? It is for now. I mean, I'm trying to go back to some short stories because um, I love the short form. I mean, that's largely what I was working on when I was here at the university. Yeah, and, and you got the Pushcart Prize and in 2012. Yeah, and then there's a there's a sort of perfection to that form that I love. It's something about like working on a small scale. I just uh, spoke to New York Magazine for an article they were doing about miniatures. I used to be a miniaturist as a like a side job. Uh, you're shaking your what head. What is that? Like, like you, I made like, scale miniatures. So like for, for collectors, um, which at the time was this sort of weirdo hobby and kind of still is but now with Pinterest and with um, Instagram there's a whole subculture of people who make miniatures so um, something that is one foot in real life would be one inch in in miniature world miniature scale and um, there's there's something really nice about working on that small canvas and that's part of what I love about short stories the two ideas that I have going now feel too um, they're a little too sprawling for me to put in that so there's that's the beauty of the large form so I, I hope I'm going to be able to sort of balance but working in both of those forms because they're they're just so different and I love both of them Oh, well, I don't think you have to choose. I don't think so. I, mean, I don't think maybe so Maybe for either. the next novel, but right. uh, yeah. <laughs> but I think most people like, you know, you. it's sort of like, you know, sometimes you want to write a symphony and sometimes you want to write just a quick little etude and you just, you know, it's different forms do different things. It's been great talking with you, Celeste. It's so great to talk to you, T, as always. Come back anytime, all right? <laughs> um, Celeste, Celesting, everyone. Little fires everywhere. You're going to want to read this one. I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks for listening. Until next time.
the handoff to Smith. Rolling to his right. Still looking for a receiver. Breaks through a tackle and he's got a seam. Down the sideline, touchdown Michigan.